Yo, 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 welcome to the show. Well, actually, welcome to an advertisement before the show, but I got you. Kind of like that old scam with the answering message. I know, annoying, right? Anyway, I'm doing this for a very important reason, though. It's because we have a brand new level that you can come support the show at. Only $2. $2! So that's $2 plus tip. Gee, Johnny, I don't have a dime. Sorry. Didn't ask for a dime. $2. Well... It's funny, see, my mom had to leave early to take my, my brother to school and my dad to work because... Two dollars. Cash. See, the problem here is is that my little brother this morning got his arm caught in the microwave and and uh, my grandmother dropped acid and she freaked out and hijacked a school bus full of penguins. So it's kind of a family crisis, so come back later. Great. I want my two dollars! Uh, if you don't know what movie that's from, I feel bad for you. It's from... Better off dead, if you're wondering. And here's the offer, guys. You can join our very secret Lions of Liberty Pride group for only $2 per month, and that will give you access to all of the streaming live content that we do. Now, you're not going to get access to all the bonus shows, but you will be able to watch us live streaming coverage of the debates. You will be able to watch some live streaming recordings from um, Conspiracy Corners. So you get a lot of the benefits without having to cough up a full $5 a month. I know. That's a lot for some people. So anyway, guys, join it up. Go to patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty and become a member of the Cools Club on the internet. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land, episode number 128, here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. I, of course, am your beautiful host, Brian McWilliams, and you can find all the show notes today at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL128. At least I hope you can, because I was trying to have some, uh, I was trying to upload and view some content on our own website, and something a little funky going on, so we'll see. Hopefully that'll be fixed up by tomorrow, but in theory... Lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL128 will have the links. But not everything's going to be linked to the show because not everything has a story behind it. Unlike many of the tales told around the old campfire, Ernest Borgnine style, uh, you know, the first thing I want to talk about in today's show, I don't even know why I was thinking about it, sitting around hammered this past weekend, just tweeting by myself, drinking whiskey, as you do, as people that are popular <laughs> want to do. Uh, no, I, I, I did opt to, uh, I don't know, have a Brian staycation. I got, uh, got real hammered alone on Friday night because my, my, my wife went out of town. So I'm like, you know, this is a great opportunity for me to sit around, play video games, drink whiskey. No one can tell me what to do. So I did just that. And of course ended up getting very hammered and getting into fights on social media with people. And, uh, I think maybe it was something around getting into fights with people on social media that made me remember a time when I was arguing with person or with person, with a person at a bar. And we were, I was trying to have a nice civil conversation. You know, and I'm a civil enough guy. <laughs> but I'm sitting at the bar and I'm, uh, you know, we're both fairly drunk, but I'm trying to be very, very uh, civilly inclined when discussing with them. But I just remember I, I got so aggravated and I basically just ended the conversation when this guy who was being a complete asshole, for being completely honest, decided that 
he was going to call me naive. Now, of course, he called me naive, and the guy's a, a rabid progressive. He's, you know, a leader of the hashtag resist movement in L.A., which just makes me roll my eyes so hard that I saw the, the back of my head, which, oddly enough, someone had scratched in some, uh, some dirty, dirty words in there and also a phone number for a lady of the evening. So maybe that's why I, my mind is so fucked up. People graffitiing inside there. But, uh, you know, I just like, this guy is uh, so aggravating. So anyway, he's obviously inclined to think a certain way to the point where he's organizing marches in the streets. And this, of course, is very early into Trump's tenure before he even really had a chance to do much. But this guy, we're arguing about it, and he's trying to uh, to to argue the point about, he specifically brought up the New Orleans hurricanes and the uh, camera, yeah, Hurricane Katrina. And raises the issue of, okay, well, what do you think, you know, what would happen if FEMA wasn't in existence, man? And before I even had a chance to respond, he then continues to call me naive and without even hearing a word out of my mouth. So I just said, you know what, man, go, you know, I'm just going to take my leave. Good, sir. Did a nice bow as you do. And I, uh, and I took off, but that really just bothered me and just made me think, you know, it just, is there anything more naive than calling a libertarian naive in general. Because if anything, calling someone naive means that they have not explored the options, that they are uh, unaccustomed to the ways of the world, that they're an innocent in the wild, that they've done no research, that they've not been exposed to the grander scheme of things. And the way in which the world interacts with each other, the way in which the cogs and the gears line up. And as we know, nothing could be farther from the truth. I mean, for people to say that we are naive presumes that we've been living in some sort of libertarian cave, which does not exist, with very few exceptions, that being Ron Paul, perhaps Rand Paul at times, perhaps the Justin Amash gets thrown into the mix. We've been inundated throughout our entire lives. Now, I'm going to be turning 40 years old this year, right? Throughout my life, I've had that brief time when Ron Paul rose to prominence in which I was able to take note of him, which I was able to, to go out and help try to raise awareness for him, going canvassing door to door with Mark and trying to, trying to vote for him and going to his events, etc. Beyond that small amount of time, I can't remember a libertarian point of view being held prominently anywhere, nor can I think of a single media outlet which held to itself to be a libertarian values uh, platform. I can't remember... Uh, anybody even mentioning the phrase libertarian in any mainstream debate. And as we've seen, there are zero libertarian policies that have been put forth in government on any level. We look at everything that's happened over the past 40 years, as long as I've been alive, and we've seen a constant growth of the state. We've seen growth from both sides, from the GOP standpoint and the Democratic standpoint, wherein the state is constantly increasing its size, the military is constantly increasing its size, the uh, welfare state is constantly increasing its size, we're constantly expanding our presence across the entire nation. Meanwhile, trade is being restricted further and further rather than growing in the free market sense. We're seeing instead crony capitalism grow. We're seeing more uh, trade agreements wherein free trade is not the ideal, but in fact is traded for a price which we're paying here at home. We're seeing tariffs come back into play even more prominently with Donald Trump in office. So all of these things put together make me wonder how anyone can possibly think that a libertarian worldview is naive. Because if anything, we have been completely immersed within a GOP or a democratic worldview for the entirety of the majority of our existence. If anything, 
That is the only thing we've known other than that which we have sought out on our own. And when you have to seek anything out on your own, of course, you need to actually learn about that thing rather than just taking it in by osmosis, as we see happen so often with the people that are brainwashed, the true possessors of the naivete in the world, the progressives, the conservatives, who seem to just take to this worldview and think it is the absolute correct God-given thing that must be right and must be done, despite the fact that they themselves have barely researched anything into it. They themselves know almost nothing about economics. They know nothing about how the social policies that they recommend actually impact the people that they want to bring up in this world and give them a better life. And in fact, they actually do the opposite in most cases. Just like the GOP with their conservative values and their conservative worldview about the military and the police, they don't want to acknowledge all the damage the military does. They don't want to acknowledge that the militaristic worldview that they espouse has actually caused the United States to become a far more dangerous place, a far more risk to terrorists, limit what we can do abroad, limit how people are are able to travel from the United States. I mean, it's just amazing to me that these people somehow, coming from a position of pure ignorance, confident ignorance, because their worldviews have been the ones that have been most prominently displayed, somehow think that we are naive for seeking out a different way of doing things when all that we've seen from these two existing parties has been failure. I mean, just because something continues to happen doesn't mean that it's not failing. You can continue to make anything happen when you have a government that has something like an $8 trillion a year budget when you can simply print more money from the Federal Reserve, (laughs) when you can borrow from all the people that we're trading with, borrow from all of our enemies to continue the war state or continue to spend on welfare, while us libertarians are stuck researching, actually coming up with foundational arguments that are based upon principles that play out in the real world with actual results that can be monitored. We can look at the way in which Austrian economics does, in fact, play out in the market. We can examine how bubbles are created by virtue of the Fed's involvement. We can look at the way the monetary cycle and the boom-bust cycle work. We can look at the way in which people are disincentivized from bettering themselves and moving up in society because of the influences of the welfare state. We can see a drastic increase in the money spent on poverty programs without any sort of even remote tick in the change in poverty level. We can see the education system that is one of the best funded in the entire world that has produced some of the worst results ever since the government took control of it. We can look at the way drug wars and military wars impact the populace at home and abroad. We can see the quantifiable results of our actions by domestic populations and families destroyed, generations put into prison from races that these progressives pretend to try to help, but meanwhile are just being sentenced to more and more of the same. I mean, what this reminds me of is the first fish that tried to walk on land. You've got all of these GOP and progressive assholes sitting around in the sludge, and you go out and you try to walk on land, and they go, hey, you don't know how to walk. Meanwhile, they're just still sitting there in the fucking water doing nothing. Well, we're actively trying to do something different. We're actively trying to change things. We talk about people being stuck in the bubble, but most people are stuck in that fishbowl. So my fellow naive libertarians, I salute you for getting out of that goddamn bowl, getting out into the world and trying to do something good.
and not just sitting around breathing the same water and fish shit that we know has never changed. All right, let's talk about some other shitty fish water. Let's talk about the fish bowl that is New York State. Oh, God, people. So just read today, because I was going to talk about this, but I saw they just made a deal. So as of July 1st, the rent agreement for the state was going to be expiring. Thus, they had a new deal that all these progressives were pushing, which predictably called for universal rent control across New York State. Now, fortunately, that did not happen. However, some crappy things still did happen. Now, those include uh, eight of the nine changes that tenants activists demanded, including preferential rents being guaranteed for the tenancy, preventing landlords from jacking the price to the legal maximum at lease renewal time. Ending the vacancy bonus, which allowed landlords to increase rents by 20% each time a regulated apartment turns over. And also repeals provisions of state law that allowed landlords to deregulate apartments and charge market rates for units when rents exceeded $2,700. So, essentially, as we've seen happen in so many states, including my home state of California, where we have a massive homeless problem, and of course in the city of Los Angeles, the homeless population which shocked the people when they started counting it, as well as San Francisco, as well as uh, in, over in Washington, not D.C., mind you, but Washington State, where Seattle is having massive homeless problems. Oh, what are they all in common? Idiotic rent increases like these. Idiotic, I, should, I shouldn't say rent increases. Idiotic increases in rent regulations like these. And of course, the realtors and the landlords, their lobbies uh, try to stop this. They try to say this is ridiculous. If anything, we need to have more ability to make more property available, to have more leeway with what we want to upgrade and what we don't want to upgrade. New York said no. (laughs) So if you're wondering where the homeless population is set to explode in the very near future, look to New York City. Now, of course, New York City already has its own fair share of homeless problems, but nothing like we've seen here where it's just completely overrun. But don't worry, soon enough. Because once you have these landlords, which have now been prevented from upping the price to the legal maximum. Isn't it called a legal maximum for a reason? Hmm? But no. Now when the lease is up for renewal, they can no longer do that. They can no longer increase the rent when someone leaves the apartment, which is one of the basic things where I guess they're saying this this disincentivizes people from kicking people out just to raise raise the leases. But as we've seen, there's so many protections in place for people. Although the good news New York City did not get one push through, which would have ended. Uh, I guess there had to be something, some, you know, a basic call, clause that said they had to have a very good reason for kicking them out. Like you can't just kick them out because, you know, it's your property and you own it. So when the lease is up that they agreed to, you know, you kick them out. So anyway, they're no longer allowed to increase the rents by 20%. So I guess that's their way of providing that people don't get to just kick people out to raise the rent. And this last one just really aggravates the living shit out of me. The landlords previously were able to deregulate the apartments if they got to $2,700, which was basically a level where you say, okay, poor people are not getting these apartments at $2,700 a month. That is now an apartment that is at, I mean, that's like a, a normal price. That's gone. It's been on the market at such an undercut rate for so long that it has now paid its dues. It's been there so long that it's now at a market rate. So go ahead and change the market rate. Go ahead, charge people what you want. Deregulate it. Nope. No, says New York City. We're going to make sure that you can't do that. So now it still has to continue at $2,700, which that apartment is probably worth, if it's going for $2,700, it's probably worth something like 
$5,000 a month in New York City. But no, they're going to continue to make you go with that little steep, step, step, step increase. So what did all the realtors and landlords say? Well, they said, this, this makes us not even want to build more units. It makes us not want to rent the units that we have. It makes us want to get the hell out of this business completely. And that is exactly what we have seen happening. You are disincentivizing people from building new properties. You're disincentivizing uh, landlords from making increases on property. And that was the other thing is they've, they've really cut back on the amount of money you can charge people after you do some capital improvements. There's another part of the law. The law cuts the amount landlords can increase rents to pay for major building improvements from 6% a year to 2% a year. So they call that a partial victory because the tenants activists wanted to have no permitted capital improvement hikes. Why would anybody improve their building? If you can't charge people money to do it, what incentive do you have? You're you're basically telling people to be slumlords. I mean, what is the point if you can't make any money back of improving the facade of the building, of making sure it's more secure, of making sure the windows are in place, of making sure the security doors are there to keep people safe, making sure the buzzer works, making sure the front gate works, for Christ's sake. If none of that is something that you can charge people for, or now you can charge 2% a year, how much do you think is going to get fixed? What incentive do they have to make sure your toilet is always working? Zero. But these fucking activists don't seem to have a thought in their head. Or again, as I was talking about earlier, we're the naive ones for thinking that this could play out somehow in the marketplace when you disincentivize people from making money, when you limit ways in which they can recoup money that they have spent, when you force people to sell things at below market value. They tend to not want to be in the market anymore. But you know, it's naive of us to think that. Meanwhile, we are seeing the consequences play out with rampant increases in homeless rates, with runaway inflation in these in these real estate markets. So that was anyway, you know, there's the the, the uh, idiotic and the sublime. That was the idiotic. But New York State actually did something good for once, guys, and that is they are one of the very few to actually introduce a bill to decriminalize sex work. And that is amazing. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, you know, Democratic lawmakers, sadly, I didn't see any libertarians on there, mostly because uh, my boy Larry Sharp didn't get in there. But it's following Massachusetts and Maine, uh, trying, trying to follow in their footsteps from the legislative perspective by vacating conviction. It actually goes farther, I'm saying. By vacating prior convictions of people involved in activity that would no longer be considered criminal. So that's amazing. So if you had been using sex work for your living and you got arrested, now you're clean in the clear. Uh, it would not offer current laws on sex trafficking. Now, of course, sex trafficking, as you and I both know, uh, is a tiny, tiny minuscule portion of this. But still, fine. Protect those people as you might. But they want to allow people to, to basically just work. And they're acknowledging that sex work is work. You're actively, voluntarily interacting with somebody to make money. It's an exchange between two people. Neither person's getting hurt. And again, acknowledges... Once you put these things in the shadows, all it does is make it more dangerous. All it does is lead to more deaths, more abuse. I mean, you want to talk about sex trafficking. That's where you get sex trafficking. You get it far more from something that is in the shadows, done through back-end deals in an illegal manner than you would if you say, 
get out of the way, open it up, let it be out in broad daylight, and then you have people voluntarily interacting it. Well, if you have that much market opportunity, you don't need to have sex traffic people come in to meet this under, uh, under the table demand. So that's all I really have to say about that. Good job on that, New York, and putting it forward. Hopefully it passes, uh, and hopefully it sets a, a trend throughout the United States. All right, let's take a quick break. I'll be right back with some more Electric Liberty Land. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Those epic words from Archilochus can sum up your ability to succeed or fail in business. I want to recommend Conversation Mat Time to our listeners as a way to hone your one-on-one conversation skills in a role-playing session that can help take you to the next level. During 25-minute sessions, you'll work through the best way to approach that raise, that interview, or that relationship with a practice professional that will provide the confidence and experience you need to get paid what you're worth or take that interpersonal risk you've never been able to conquer. Just like in jiu-jitsu, the difference between a novice and a black belt is mat time. Train to win. Visit conversationmattime.com and take advantage of a free 15-minute consultation just for listeners of this show. All right, welcome back to Electric Liberty Land, episode number 128, lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL128 for all the show notes. Uh, Now, coming back into the show, this has been a topic that's already been discussed, so I'm not going to go into super deep detail in it, but you know that the Daily Beast, which of course is an ultra-progressive shill shit of a publication, had doxed a man who was you know, this this black ex-con just trying to work in New York, who's a big Trump fan. He made a video of Nancy Pelosi where they say that he doctored it. I don't know. I guess it seemed to me like he creatively edited it. Uh, I guess his doctoring, quote unquote, in which case, if that's doctoring, every news outlet doctors it. But they say that he slightly slowed down Nancy Pelosi's speech to make it seem like she was slurring. It was a very funny video. I shared it. I thought it was hilarious. And so did many, many other people. But As we know, the left cannot take being laughed at because they feel like they own comedy. Only they are permitted to laugh at others and no one is permitted to laugh at them. Otherwise, they lose their motherfucking shit. So, the Daily Beast lost its motherfucking shit and worked in conjunction with Facebook. And this is out there, acknowledged. Facebook helped them to dox the man who created this video. Even though I believe it last time I I read a story on it, he denies it. He said he only shared it. He did not create the video. That, to this point, is still unconfirmed. But Facebook aided the Daily Beast. Again, progressive shit shell publication, the Daily Beast. Aided them by providing them the information of the man who shared the video first which I view as a violation of data. Now they'll argue, they'll say, well, no, but you know, he, he shared it publicly. So we're just telling him who put it out there first. But when you have a journalistic entity trying to find this out, trying to decide, okay, where did this come from? And there's you know, millions of, of internet videos out there. You clearly have an institution looking to make an active decision and take a side. And they did. So interestingly enough, Facebook has taken the side of the daily beast again. And they've taken it upon themselves to ban natural news. Now, natural news, if you're not familiar familiar with it, is a very popular site. Uh, it talks a lot about health. Now, granted, this is more holistic health. It's outside of the mainstream view of what health would be. A lot of it is not necessarily Western medicine. It might be more Eastern medicine or non-traditional ways of treating things. 
It also has a lot of conspiracies on it. So what happened? Ah, well, the Daily Beast published a report into some far-right conspiracy theories that had become staples on natural news. Some of it gets, you know, now this Daily Beast article said it became as an alternative health site rallying against evidence-based, quote-unquote, evidence-based medicine. I talked about organic foods. Now, a lot of the stories I used to pull for our written stuff would be talking about farmers being raided for raw milk. A lot of that would come from natural news. So they were also very good about calling out the state on its aggressive tactics in combating foods, which they viewed as not safe or not uh, not legal, like we're saying raw milk, unpasteurized cheeses. God, the demons of unpasteurized cheese coming to get you. You think your farts are bad on regular cheese? Just you wait. And of course, they sold some supplements. Now, they're saying that it's morphed into a conspiracy-laden smorgasbord of far-right theories and that it cannot be trusted. <laughs> and this is, <laughs> this is an example of a headline. Uh, this is what the left has become, targeting retarded children for transgender indoctrination. <laughs> I mean, I'm just laughing because that is a ridiculous headline. But these are the type of things that, that can be published on natural news. So the Daily Beast is not wrong in saying that they do have some extreme viewpoints. Now, granted, that's a little bit clickbaity, but it's still a very popular platform. And Natural News has had some scoops that have been true. So what happens? Oh, Facebook decides that since the Daily Beast calls them bad, they must be bad. Because the Daily Beast, of course, cannot be wrong. They cannot be fallible. They are, in fact, the progressive left. Obviously, Natural News was not happy about this. They had 3 million Facebook followers. And really, I guess it was one of the last platforms they were left on because I think everybody else had already kind of banned them. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those things where, obviously, I'm not one for the proliferation of disinformation. But at the same time, you look at this crackdown that these social media platforms have on quote-unquote fake news, quote-unquote uh, conspiracy news, and all these other things. But how are you to know? You know, and it's like, and how many times have we seen the mainstream media's reports on what is quote unquote factual be completely wrong? I don't even need to talk about the war state, how the media lied us into the war in Iraq, how we've been lied into any number of various wars over the years, how they've misinformed us, how they misled us, how they, I mean, God, just look at the Trump stuff going on. Russiagate? <laughs> how many months do we hear about this? How many times have we told it was fact? But not only that. You guys know the whole vitamin C thing? Are you supposed to take that? And it's, it's, you know, this wonder drug. That's bullshit. Total bullshit. How about the fact that eggs have gone from being bad to you, for you to good for you to bad for you to good for you about 25, 100 times? Same thing with coffee. Same thing with salt. Same thing with any number of media-approved studies and talking points that we find out later are complete and total fucking nonsense. But yet... Now you have a social media company that's going to pass judgment based upon a progressive shill publication to strike down a 3 million strong following of a company on Facebook that purports to be a news outlet. I mean, that is just fucking wrong. Now, I want to read to you the statement. And yes, just the caveat. Yeah, I know. I know Facebook's a private company. I know they can do what they want. It still doesn't mean I should be happy about it. it still doesn't mean I can't have an opinion on it. So... Let's see, uh, just for shits and giggles, what Adams, uh, what's his first name? Hold on. Uh, the founder of Natural News, Mike Adams. Here is his post about being taken down, <laughs> which, I, which I enjoyed. 
The techno-fascists, including Wikipedia, have decided that no speech that questions any official narrative will be allowed on any platform. Anyone who questions the safety of toxic vaccines, 5G cell towers, geoengineering, chemotherapy, or glyphosate weed killer chemicals is now maliciously attacked, smeared, and deplatformed. You're not even allowed to talk about nutrition, anti-cancer foods, or nutritional supplements without being labeled a, quote, vitamin website and accused of pushing fake cures. Quote, excuse me, parentheses, that's right, the left-wing authoritarian tyrants are now anti-nutrition on top of everything else. He also had like an hour-long video rant. But he makes a good point. Uh, you know, you should have the ability to question anything. That's it. That's free speech. That's the way it works. And as I said, there's so many things that we're wrong about all the goddamn time. Just look at climate change. The media has told us time and time again that the world was ending. Al Gore was out there saying that by 2010, the world would be flooded. We'd have beaches covered and, you know, we'd be three feet underwater and Florida would be gone and New York City would be submerged. Oh, bullshit. But they reported as though it was true. So we need to be able to question and we need to have outlets like this to be able to question on. It doesn't mean you take it as gospel. It's like everything. Again, to hark on the naive statements, if there's one thing as libertarians that we're pretty goddamn good at, it's not taking things at face value. It's a questioning why, questioning how, questioning for what reason I should believe this thing that I'm being told. And you know what? It's on me to do the research. Don't believe everything at face value. If they tell you, hey, you know what? Squirting bleach in your fucking eyeballs is good for you. And you decide to go and go and just grab some bleach and dump it in your eyes without maybe doing a little research, maybe seeing, has anybody else already tried it? Do we have any uh, studies that have been done on it? I can look into and see how many, how many studies have been done. You deserve to be blind. It's on you, man. The abdication of self-responsibility, the abdication of taking it on yourself to figure out what you should do with your life. Instead of just being told, here's what you do, here are your marching orders, go along with your merry life. And that is the danger of social media to me. You know, there's, I was listening to Scott Adams on his show, talking about how Google basically already knows that it can brainwash you. Then he is an example of somebody being turned from a left-wing progressive into a right-winger because of all the videos that uh, YouTube was showing him. He started watching one thing. They led him into harder and harder and harder things. Now, not that this is intentional, mind you. I <laughs> can't prove that it was intentional. But it goes to show you how the amplification factor of social media, this subtle boiling frog effect of being led down a certain path, well, it can be very nefarious. And when you've got companies like social media on you know, Facebook companies, uh, when you've got Google, when you've got Twitter, when you've got all these people working together in conjunction to deplatform somebody or to push a certain narrative, well, we've got a fucking problem. And I do think that it has a deep effect on people, people's psyche, people's uh, way of interacting, people, what they believe. If all you're seeing is the echo chamber effect, what do you think you're going to believe? Now, that's fucking naive to simply believe that everyone agrees with your worldview. All right. How's about we move it along? Uh, you know, by the way, real quick, I want to talk about this. Um, actually, you know what? Scratch that. I'm going to talk about poverty because, again, let's talk about more things that libertarians are naive for thinking. And that includes having the audacity to think that humanity's lot in life has gotten better 
ever since the Industrial Revolution, the, the continued expansion of capitalism, or I actually I don't even know if it's expanding anymore, because now you've got all these goddamn socialists out there trying to combat it. But that capitalism has been, for the most part, a universal good, has brought people out of poverty, has raised people's standard of living up to the point where poverty in the United States is the biggest misconception that has ever lived. Because you've got people that are living in quote-unquote poverty who still are living beyond the means of 99% of the world population. People walking around with iPhones, people walking around with flat-screen TVs, people who have cars, people who have ways to get to work, people who have plenty of food to eat, with very few exceptions. And this comes in the wake of two different stories. The first that I read was that extreme poverty statistics have been overestimated, especially among families with children. And now this article came out, the one I'm citing, uh, this is from a Reason article that I came across and happened to follow up another piece from humanprogress.org, um, which I had shared, I think, about four or five days, and I, I finally getting around to talk about. But we found that the extreme people, or people living in extreme poverty, significantly inflated. And this comes from the National Bureau of Economic Research, showing that more than 90% of people previously classified as living in extreme poverty were actually misclassified. I know. Shocking, right? Shocking that the massive welfare state and the goddamn government could fuck this up. But they found a way. And you know what? Maybe this is a conspiracy theory worthy of natural news, but I'm pretty sure they found a way because Having more people in poverty means more money coming to that department, more money coming to the government. So they're basically enticed to continue to have more people in poverty. Again, this is a naive thing to think. I know that, you know, people are driven by personal benefit, but that's me, baby. Anyway, new data has allowed us to re-examine the rates of extreme poverty, which the National Bureau of Economic Research defines as living on less than $2 per person per day. So the actual percentage of people living in that is 0.24%. Yes, less than a quarter of a percent. And this is taken from a 2011 excuse me, survey of income and program participation, as well as administrative tax and benefit data. So these people, uh, there are four different researchers that found the 3.6 non-homeless households with survey-reported cash income below $2 per person a day, 92% of those were not in extreme poverty once you include in-kind transfers, replace survey reports of earnings and transfer receipts with administrative records, and account for ownership of substantial assets. In fact, more than half of these households have incomes above the poverty line entirely. Shocker. I know. Shocker. And even more surprisingly, as we said, I think earlier in the uh, the headline, people that had extreme poverty, the children, after adjusting these and, and going into the numbers again, guess how many actually were in extreme poverty who had children? If you said zero, you're exactly correct. Zero. Zip. So all of this, all this preaching, all this talk from the left, all these people that are saying, oh, we have to help the children living in extreme poverty. Don't you care about the children? Well, good news. You don't have to because they're not living in extreme poverty. Zero households after the adjusted data. Now, a lot of this also comes from having grossly misunderestimated the income that is uh, that a lot of these households come in that were clear, that were previously considered under the uh, poverty line. Most of these people, like 80% of the houses per this report, actually had additional incomes in cash that they weren't reporting. So another big surprise, guys. 
oh yeah, they were taking advantage of the system. They were getting paid out. They were getting SNAP benefits. They were getting discounts. They were getting food stamps. They're getting government-subsisted housing. They're getting all of the benefits of the welfare system and actually just working cash jobs on the side. So this government entity that's doing the initial research didn't do any investigations into it, didn't actually uh, look to find what the income levels really were, and just started handing out vouchers, you know, buying votes. So good job to this institute, or I'm sorry, not the institute, good job to the Bureau of Economic Research for looking into this and showing us exactly how reality does play out. And, you know, let me read you a quick paragraph, then I'm going to go on to this other story. Gotta love this. Researchers note the preponderance of evidence suggests that households reclassified due to underreported earnings and assets have survey incomes that are likely to be gross errors. This provides a potential explanation for the lack of a strong correlation by several studies between income poverty and material hardship, which is, of course, a lot of what we do see with our very own eyes, <laughs> easily observable. Now, the paper does go on to say, though, that contrast, in contrast, households reclassified due to receipt of in-kind transfers, food and housing benefits appear to be significantly worse off than the official poor on multiple dimensions of well-being, implying that these benefits are well-targeted to the needy. Now, again, you and most of the people listening to this podcast still are not going to support these programs. Uh, I know that I would personally have private charities oversee it and acknowledging that even if some people are getting the desired effect here, I still don't know if that correlates to the end result being achieved. Because as we're seeing, a lot of people are not moving out of poverty, even that are you know, even the people that really need these services are still not moving out of poverty. They're simply staying in the in that same region. And the amount of neglect and abuse, the amount of money wasted on this makes me think that we just need to completely overhaul the entire system. And if it is such a tiny amount of people that are actually on the poverty rolls, well, that makes me think that private charities probably can do a lot more of this work than we than we perceive. And that this unsubstantiated need to provide all of these billions and billions of dollars every year to address this mysterious problem that doesn't actually seem to exist can be better spent elsewhere, possibly by giving more tax incentives to people, maybe giving people more charitable, charitable write-offs on their taxes so they are enticed to then give to charities to help people out directly rather than relying on government to do it in the worst possible fashion as we're seeing here. Okay, now let's go to this other study. And this is from Human Progress, which is... Uh, I'm really liking this organization, just FYI, but Human Progress has five graphs, they say, will change your mind about poverty. And essentially, Angus Deaton, who is a Nobel Prize winning economist, also on the board of Human Progress, reiterated his belief that the whole world is getting better. Not for everybody at once, of course, but overarchingly getting better, especially when it comes to poverty. And he's looking at uh, some different psychological and cultural aspects. And one chart that he starts off with shows the number of people in China, India, Indonesia, and Germany, and the United States who feel that poverty has declined. And with 50% of the vote, it is China. Of course, coincidentally, that aligns with China's embracing of capitalism, the allowing the average worker to drastically increase their income and their standard of living, going from an agricultural hand-to-mouth society to one that is more based in uh, manufacturing. Now they're working to get into high technology in the coastal regions as the manufacturing side moves more inland. So again, those people that are used to just farming hand-to-mouth are now getting jobs in factories, 
making decent wages, able to pull their children out of having to work every day, actually able to move up in society, etc. That's followed by India at 27%, Indonesia, and then, of course, the people that think poverty have decreased in Germany and the United States, 8%. (laughs) So, despite the fact that we are seeing a measured decrease, and he has another chart here showing that the explosion of wealth over the last two centuries uh, has led to a massive decrease in the rate of poverty. So he says in 1820, more than 90% of the world population lived on less than $2 a day, 80% on less than $1 a day, adjusted for inflation and purchasing power. And by 2015, less than 10% of people lived on less than $1.90 a day. And that, of course, is the World Bank's current definition of extreme poverty, the one that we also used in the last story we talked about. Less than 10% of people in the world. Think about that. I mean, we still hear stories of children making shoes and of people toiling away in these slave factories, you know, making our our Nike uh, slippers. But clearly, the average wages have still risen to the point where people are now no longer in extreme poverty, where the standard of living has just increased exponentially. And this next chart that he talks about has that same factor, wherein back in 1820, We had people, you know, we're talking about the billions of people on the earth, right? So almost a billion people lived in extreme poverty. As of 2015, that number has dropped to slightly over 500 million. Now, I know you say, well, that doesn't sound like a lot, except for the fact that the population has increased since that time back in 1820 from 1 billion up to over, of course, 7 billion. So he's got a nice chart showing the number of people not in extreme poverty started sharply increasing as of 1920 and has shot all the way up now to the point where over 6.5 billion people are now in a level wherein they are out of poverty, they're existing in a fine fashion, well, reasonably fine fashion, at least they're not starving to death. And we're seeing a drop in that number as well. And just put a little bow on this. The Brookings Institute projects that by 2030, poverty will all but vanish with only 5% of the global population being under the poverty line. And they say in the best case scenario, it will decrease to only 1.4% of the planet's population. So there you go, people. We're told that poverty is a problem. We're told that the world is a horrible place. We're told that capitalism is evil. But as we see, capitalism is the good that keeps on giving. Taking the peeps out of poverty, making sure their dollars go farther with sweet, sweet, cheap goods that are imported from countries that have a comparative advantage in manufacturing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right, let's talk uh, real quick to wrap the show up. Uh, Let's talk about Tucker Carlson. And I didn't want to get into this too much because basically Tom Woods did a whole episode on Tucker Carlson embracing Elizabeth Warren. So I'm not really going to touch that other than just to touch on Tucker saying that Elizabeth Warren's patriot economic or economic patriotism plan, whatever the fuck she called it. He was really saying that it was like a thing for for good, you know, that American companies shouldn't be looking to go overseas and that they're only beholden to their stakeholders and not America and that we needed more economic nationalism. Tucker also said that she doesn't have anything in there about the climate. Now, maybe it just didn't come out, but Elizabeth Warren does have a $2 trillion climate change plan that she wants to wrap in. So Tucker, if she gets elected, she's going to be, you know, trying to push that through as well, guy. 
But in general, Tucker Carlson's take is nationalism good, capitalism bad, and unabashed free trade bad. And he goes on during this diatribe, which is about eight minutes long, to just attack libertarians out of fucking nowhere. And now he's done this several times on his show before to the point where Tucker Carlson is essentially, to me, an enemy of libertarians or individualists. Uh, He is a man who clearly has an agenda, and that agenda includes trying to discredit and destroy anybody running on a libertarian platform. Now, I'm not going to bring up the other examples of this, but I do want to play some of the clips from this last diatribe. And as I said, Dave Smith dedicated an entire show to it. Uh, and I do recommend you listen to the part of the problem where he, he uh, does a counter or contra Carlson episode on this and really goes into his entire spiel. But the thing that really just drove me insane was trying to figure out if Tucker Carlson is willfully ignorant, if he is intentionally lying or if he's just plain fucking stupid when it comes to understanding libertarians. Because the things that he says on this most recent show are absolutely fabricated. I mean, it honestly makes me wonder if somebody got to Tucker Carlson, if the mob that smashed on his door and scared the crap out of his wife after he had the gall to speak up about, uh, what was it, freedom of speech? Or that he dared question uh, some sort of some race values that were going on? I can't remember the exact story that instigated the incident. But, you know, the man had been good on war. He'd been good about free speech issues. I I just don't get this turn. I don't get the economic turn. I don't get the turn towards embracing Elizabeth Warren. And I don't get why he's attacking libertarians and just making shit up out of the clear blue. Anyway, let me play you a couple of these clips and then I'll talk about them. And I'm going to bring us in after Tucker already talks and goes through the whole reading of Elizabeth Warren's economic plan diatribe. Uh, I will link to the video in the show notes, though, so you can watch the entire thing if you so desire. But essentially, it's just nationalism. He says she sounded like Trump at his best, just to give you an idea of where she was coming from. Nobody you voted for said that or would ever say it. Republicans in Congress can't promise to protect American industries. They wouldn't dare to do that. It might violate some principle of Austrian economics. It might make the Koch brothers mad. It might alienate the libertarian ideologues who, to this day, fund most Republican campaigns. So Tucker Carlson is basically taking the Koch brothers and saying that they represent a funding for the entirety of GOP and also that somehow their funding has trickled down into creating this Austrian economic state. Now, as we've seen, that's total fucking nonsense. And the reason that no you know, state leader or representative should say that they can go and protect American businesses and jobs and create all this shit. It's because they can't. Because if you want to have a free market system wherein you have cheap goods, which is making everybody's lives better, if you want to have good trade relationships, you cannot have a protectionist environment that makes trade difficult and raises the prices on domestic goods to the point where they're not affordable to the domestic customer. But let's return to the main point. That somehow Tucker Carlson thinks that there's this libertarian strain that is causing us to reject trying to influence the way in which the market will play out. And somehow any of these GOP people that are elected, other than possibly Rand Paul, maybe Justin Amash and Mike Lee, but that anybody else has a smidgen of an idea of what Austrian economics is. If that was true, wouldn't more of them have voted to audit the Fed? 
Wouldn't more of them support Rand Paul with that bill when it was put forth? Wouldn't more of them have supported his penny plan to try to rein in the budget? Wouldn't more of them be opposed to expanding the military budget to the point where it's something like $800 billion and they still want to add on another $30 billion? Wouldn't they oppose just having the Fed be able to influence the monetary supply in the way it is? Wouldn't they have opposed all of the bailouts that George W. Bush pushed? But go on, Tucker. Keep spewing horse shit at me. Please, I haven't had enough. She says that taxpayers ought to benefit from the research and development that they pay for. And yet, she writes, quote, we often see American companies take that research and use it to manufacture products overseas, like Apple did with the iPhone. The companies get rich and American taxpayers have subsidized the creation of low-wage foreign jobs, end quote. Okay, and where in the libertarian platform does it say that we support any sort of subsidies? Yeah, he's beginning this whole rant by saying that libertarians control the GOP, and the GOP, of course, is for subsidies, as are the Democrats, Tucker. So you endorse going because she's got an economic platform that says she wants to end taxpayer subsidies. At the same time, she is introducing a climate platform that wants to put $650 million into subsidies, you fucking idiot. So he's endorsing someone for going out against subsidies who also has a platform worth $2 trillion that endorses subsidies. Libertarians are against all subsidies for anybody across the board because we don't want the government playing favorites. A subsidy is simply playing favorites. And even if you argue, well, it's just, it's not a subsidy to play favorites. It's just to help Americans compete. Well, that's still helping to play favorites. It's helping an industry to survive here where it should not survive. The laws of comparative advantage come into play here. We don't have the advantage creating this product. Such, we should not be in that market. We should not be competing. Somebody else can do it better. It's worth it for us to do something that we do well, that we can make a profit on and provide for the entire world economy and make money in that fashion not to lose money by creating a product that we're not designed to create or which somebody can create better because of the system that they might have involving their economics, involving the people, involving the population explosion. I don't know, but the comparative advantage exists there. So we're against all subsidies. I mean, I would argue that we probably would have advanced past fossil fuels much faster if we didn't have subsidies for the oil market. But hey, what do I know? I'm just a guy who's a libertarian influencing GOP politics. So, you know, my fingers are all in the pudding. Let's continue. In Washington, almost nobody speaks for the majority of voters. Oh, uh, here's what he's going to say. But if we had more libertarians in there who, who are more centric in between the social progressiveness of Americans and the economic soundness and wanting to, to avoid going to war. Right, Tucker? You're either a libertarian zealot controlled by the banks. Ah, oh, for fuck's sake. About entrepreneurship and how we need to cut entitlements. That's one side of the aisle. Or worse, you're some decadent trust fund socialist who wants to ban passenger cars and give Medicaid to illegal aliens. What libertarian is controlled by the banks? As I said earlier... Libertarians hate the Federal Reserve, which is the most powerful bank out there. We hate the fact that banks have access to money from the Federal Reserve. We hate the way the monetary system is set up. We hate the people that we hate the fact that the Fed prints money, that the banks are the first ones to get it, but it fucks up the monetary supply for the rest of the country. We hate the fact that fiat currency is the thing. We're trying to get back on a gold standard. We're trying to get back on private currencies. We're trying to adopt Bitcoin. In what possible way are libertarians zealots owned by the banks? 
Our leadership class remains resolutely libertarian, committed to the rhetoric of markets when it serves them, utterly libertine on questions of culture. Republicans will lecture you about how payday loan scams are a critical part of our market economy. Then they'll work to make it easier for your kids to smoke weed because, hey, freedom. Yeah, I will, because they're both freedom. They're both fucking freedom, man. You have the choice to choose to smoke weed. You have a choice to go to a payday loan because you need that money. And of course, Tucker Carlson's done zero investigations into the benefits of payday loans. So people need them because they either are in a tough situation, they need to make a quick payment. And because they don't have access to credit because they cannot be trusted in most of these situations or don't have a credit history, that's the only option. So would you rather these people not have any option, Tucker? And yeah, you know, it's freedom to smoke weed, man. You know what you do with what you want with your body. I don't know what to tell you here. It's not your decision to tell somebody what they can and can't do, how they're supposed to live their life. If people want their kids to smoke weed, they should be allowed to smoke weed. And on the basic premise that the leadership class is libertarian, it, where? Where are you pulling this out of? How deep is your hand up your ass where you're just pulling out these hunks of shit and peanuts and throwing them out to your audience? If anything, the leadership class in this country is progressive. I mean, we're talking about people who will push forward the most progressive uh, civil liberties infringing agendas. They want to talk about restricting fossil fuels. They want to talk about restricting your civil liberties. They want to talk about getting rid of cars and airplanes. They, the people that have the most power are the people that are the most unaffected by everyday concerns. Thus, those are the people that put out the most insane ideas. They're not fucking libertarians. And libertarians wouldn't be a ruling class anyway. Because libertarians want personal freedom for everybody. They want to take a step back rather than lead and rule. The whole purpose of, if we had a libertarian leadership class, you wouldn't have a leadership class. They dissolve themselves. And frankly, after this nonsense, I hope Tucker Carlson's show dissolves itself. I mean, as you see there, this is total nonsense. It's devoid from reality. It's based on nothing. It's literally just slander. So I got to ask again, who got to Tucker? Who's making him make this stuff up? Is Hillary Clinton sitting behind him with a gun? Is he going to get Arkansided? It's, it is just mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. But speaking of Hillary Clinton, I just want to end this show on a hilarious note after that ranting and raving. Hillary Clinton has been asked to speak on a cyber defense conference run by, I think it's called Tiger Eye or Fire Eye. Fire Eye. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, is the purpose of her keynote to come in and tell people how to lie about having cybersecurity? Or maybe she's coming in, maybe the whole pitch of her talking at this conference is to go in and to be like, okay, they bring her in, they sit her down, they're like, okay, Hillary, give your speech. And then in the meantime, they've got somebody off to the side in sign language telling people what to look for when somebody's lying about having good cyber technology. <laughs> Here's the, like Somebody's off to the side signing like, now you'll see when she uses the phrase computer and doesn't pronounce it correctly, clearly she's not correctly understanding how the cyber world works. And you see when she refers to an email server and puts server in quotation marks while she's speaking, that's a pretty sure inclination that her cyber protection is not where it needs to be. Like, is that really the purpose of this? Because I can't understand how else you'd have Hillary Clinton come to speak about cyber technology and cyber defense when she was the one that was hacked, that couldn't protect any of her shit, that is at the center of this whole scandal from emails being stolen from the Democratic National Committee. 
a woman who can't protect Jack, who was hitting blackberries with a hammer to protect them. <laughs> ah, you can't make it up, folks. Sometimes reality is truly stranger than fiction. And by the way, let me give a quick, uh, quick shout out to uh, a man who raised my attention to this specific issue, and that's Mr. William Patton. So thank you, Will Patton, for your contribution to this week's show. You get a very special kiss from me. All right, that's going to wrap it up, guys. From me, Brian McWilliams, from the Lions of Liberty and from Electric Liberty Land, always stay plugged into Liberty.